Hi, everyone, and welcome to Means of Creation, a show where we dive in, into the passion economy and interview founders and creators who are building products that help people to turn what they love to do into their source of income. I'm your host, Lee Jin, and I'm joined by my co-host, Nathan Bashez. And today we're going to be speaking to Ankur Nagpal, who is the co-founder and CEO of Teachable, an online course creation platform that has enabled more than 100,000 course creators to sell over $800 million worth of courses and coaching to over 30 million customers. Teachable lets people take their knowledge and monetize it. Examples of this include creators who are teaching classes on sourdough bread making, email marketing, and hand lettering, among other things. Teachable was founded in 2014, raised about $12 million of venture funding from investors like Accomplice and Naval Ravikant before being acquired earlier this year by the Brazilian online course platform Hotmart for about $250 million. We are excited to talk to Encore today about the inspiration behind Teachable, the future of online education and the knowledge economy, as well as about how COVID is impacting the online learning landscape. So without further ado, welcome Encore. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, I'm excited. Looking forward. Awesome. And for those of you guys in the audience, for the last 30 minutes or so, we let people come up and ask questions and join the conversation. So think of any questions that pop to mind. And for the last 30 minute, minutes, you'll be able to raise your hand and actually join us up here. Okay, so let's get started. So Obviously, we're doing this interview over Zoom, and now during COVID, sharing knowledge on the internet is no longer anything that's rare or novel. You know, in 2020, the concept of virtual learning has all of a sudden become really commonplace. But let's rewind for a second back to 2014 when Teachable was first getting started. Online education back then, I recall, was really synonymous with MOOCs, massive online courses. Can you tell us a little bit about what you remember of the ecosystem back in those days and why did you feel like the world needed Teachable? Yeah, so I, the idea for Teachable came about, I think in 2013, I just moved to New York City. It wasn't even, a lot of people start companies because they have this grand vision of this large business they want to build. For me, it was more of an organic thing where I was new in New York City, I was doing nothing really professionally. So I started teaching a little bit in-person general assembly. Also Udemy was up and coming at the time, which for those of you that don't know, it's a one of the first course marketplaces so I had a course in Udemy, had a, you know, was teaching general assembly and enough for, I started to see that this is kind of interesting. Like, you know, like there's like, we can build a business here. So me and a buddy of mine, Conrad, we had a few courses on Udemy, which we pretty early on got to, you know, a couple of thousand dollars a month in revenue, but found it really hard to scale beyond that. Uh, the biggest reason it was really hard is on Udemy, you never owned your audience. So you never like got their email address. You actually couldn't even connect with them off platform. Udemy had all these insane discounts. It would be like every four days it'd be like, guys, how about we give you everything for $10? So it was really hard to build a scalable business. And you couldn't, and if you bought ads, like the lifetime value was went to Udemy. Like, yes, they bought your $10 course, but eventually they'd buy other products on Udemy. So for all those reasons, I built the first version of what did become Teachable as this like little side project with Conrad as my first customer. And then, you know, we launched a course on it, had a little bit of traction, and immediately we're like, wow, this, there's probably other Udemy instructors who could do this. But at the time, this whole thing we thought was just like small little side project for Udemy teachers to sell courses on their own website. It probably took six months, which took us to the middle of 2014, where I'm like, shit, we might have stumbled on something that could be a real business, which is when, you know, we went to Silicon Valley, raised our first round of funding, even then had everyone tell us like, this is a top, like the market size is too small. Like how, like, how is this business ever going to be like, you know? Like how you, like, yes, you can probably get to a million bucks a year in revenue, but this is not going to scale beyond that. It's a tiny market. Obviously we disagreed, but now you have, you know, you're writing about the passion economy and everyone's like, holy shit, this is massive. So we've definitely witnessed like, you know, the world kind of change. I mean, other people realize just how big this whole industry is. That's really interesting that venture capitalists told you that the market was too small. Did yeah. they believe that online learning in general was a pretty niche market or specifically the dynamic of individual course instructors peeling off of the marketplaces instead yep. of their own courses was too small? 
I think there's multiple things. One, at the time, online education as an industry had largely not de delivered any great outcomes. Like it was still seen as this place where venture capital went to and no money ever came out. So education was already not a great place. In retrospect, I also probably was pitching the business terribly. Like I, like, I think like, you know, like white labeled Udemy is not exactly the sexiest pitch out there. So like it also probably made it seem smaller than it is. But yeah, a lot of people thought it's a really weird thing for like, like, one, the creator economy is such as much smaller, right? There weren't, there really weren't that many platforms out there that let people build audiences. So the idea of people monetizing an audience with information or knowledge seemed like this really small niche thing that like would never kind of become mainstream. And frankly, to be completely honest, like blunt, early on, we stumbled on this. It's not like I thought this would like be massive. It's like we built this like side project and then a year and we're like, holy shit, we got lucky. This is going to be like this, this, we like stumbled upon this. So yeah, like early on, a lot of our investors had that, but I mean, as you know, fundraising was, you know, it's a bit of a, if you get one person and they all kind of come in. So once yeah. we closed our first check, the rest of the round happened in two weeks, but the first check took a good two months or so. What was the real, what was the thing that was really different from your expectations? Was it just that there was like more teachers or there was more students that were willing to pay for these kinds of courses or both, or is there something specific? So, so the thing that like blew my mind is we thought like there's all these Udemy teachers and let's just go acquire these Udemy teachers. And we soon realized these Udemy teachers were like, one, there weren't that many, like it looked bigger from the outside than it really is. They really weren't making that much money and that the market cap of that, that entire ecosystem was really small. But then we realized there's tons of people that are using this like horrible mix of like a million WordPress plugins to make this shit work on the back end. And that's what blew our minds when we started seeing all of these random million dollar instructors who are running on legacy WordPress technology. They don't care about Udemy, but they've just like built their own solutions. And that's when we realized that's our real market. It's not really these people who have small audiences in a marketplace. It's people who have their own website that are using legacy technology that we can bring over. And this market is a lot bigger than we realized. Mm. Um, so that was probably the most surprising thing. And pretty soon by like our second or third year, like Udemy creators, which we thought was our primary market was like one or 2% of all signups. So it just became this like small, largely irrelevant thing. Pretty soon. Hmm. Fascinating. That's awesome. And I feel like it's a, it's an interesting thing where, you know, you can build a product for a certain market and then yeah. discover that there's tons of demand for your product. It's just from a totally different segment of people yep. Yep. that yep. have a very yep. similar Absolutely. problem, but it sounds yep. like there, there's just more of them. And also maybe they're more committed to being independent. And so, yep. you know, that's why they weren't on Udemy. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, so since since the time that Teachable has gotten started since 2014, there's been a lot of new innovations and models that have been tried in online education since then. There's all of the cohort-based programs like the on-deck fellowship or things that combine education with community like Reforge. I'm curious how you sort of map out the landscape and how do you think about what are the major phases of evolution in online mm -hmm. ed since you've started and what do you think are some of the most promising trends? Yep. So from the highest level, like zoom, let's zoom all the way out. Teachable is very unopinionated about what form factor the education should be. Like we don't have an opinion that like education should be X, Y, or Z. Our goal is, can we build a really strong payments engine? Can we build a great place for a creator to have a relationship with their audience? And then let's just adapt to what the world of education does around. It. So historically education was large, by historically, I mean, 2014 to like, let's say 2016, the best version of online education was asynchronous video. Like we provided for, you know, ways for people to do lots of things. Most courses were recorded videos, which for better or worse, like just as a human race kind of sucks, like, like considering the power of the internet, like we can probably do better than like recorded videos, right? That's like taking an old form factor, repurposing it for now, but we, we didn't care. We're agnostic. We're like, we'll let you do whatever. But then we've started to see people innovate a little bit. I mean, I think as you pointed out, the few trends we're seeing is now a lot of people have, a lot of people realize you have to have accountability sort of built into your product. Otherwise, it's just going to be like all the books behind you, Nathan, that you probably not read. Maybe you have read them, but you know, like there's, there's Nathan's probably lot, the only person who's yeah. a lot of them are my wife's. So yeah, I do yeah. have that uh, out, but yeah. Yeah. So, so, so accountability became one thing. People also then realize when you take people through a cohort, you can actually charge more and deliver more value because 
the education isn't the only value, the, the relationships they're having with people also starts becoming the value. And with that said, in terms of the actual delivery of content, I still think what we're doing now, like by we, I mean like just civilization, we're going to look back on this and be like, this is pretty elementary shit. Like, I don't know how it's going to change, but like, I, there's going to be a ton of innovation in how education is actually delivered. And our goal with Teachable is like, let's build all the other pieces around it and let, let the people who like, if someone builds a new form factor, let that all happen through our platform. So a good example is now a lot of our top courses, for instance, yes, they have a recorded video piece on Teachable, but they also might have a community on Circle. They might be using Zoom for live sessions, but they use Teachable to package the whole thing together. And that's sort of how we think of ourselves in this ecosystem is we wanna be the place that like controls the packaging and the pricing and the sale. And we're fine integrating with other tools that will do certain specific things far better than we can. It doesn't make sense for us as a product to try and do every one of those things. All-in-one solutions are just not gonna work in, you know, in this landscape. Right. At some level, it's interesting because it's like, what level of abstraction do you want to play and how integrated do you want to be? And I think there is huge advantage for being kind of format agnostic because there's going to be yep. lots of format innovation, probably. I agree. And I, at least I really hope so. Yep. Um, yep. But at some level also, it's like, you don't want to just be like Stripe. You know what I mean? There's like yep. this, there's like the yeah. Stripe layer where it's like, it's just yeah. payments. And then it kind yeah. of becomes like a total scale game where it's like rock bottom yep. kind of like yep. margins. Yep. Yep. And then there's like the super integrated thing where it's like, you know, I guess maybe Udemy is an example where it was an overall small economy, but it was like very constrained, very yep. like soup to nuts, very controlled. Yep. I'm curious, like how you decide what, what to be and what to, where to be integrated and where yeah. to, where to be modular. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because again, something I've had, I have renewed appreciation for is how different things are internationally. Because I mean, right now working with Hotmart who in Brazil, for them and in that market, which is not as developed, the whole super app approach of like, let's just do every single thing and build it makes a ton of sense. I mean, there's a lot of reasons, right? From like, you know, the cost of engineering headcount to culturally it being acceptable to have like these one giant app where you do every single thing. I think here it's just very, very hard to do everything well. And in this market, you have to do things at a very, very high degree of execution to be successful. So we're looking at, you know, like what we're about 200 people now, even with like that amount of headcount, we can't build every single thing. It's just, it's just not, we're just not gonna, we're not, we're gonna end up doing nothing well if we try and do everything. And I do think the, the US market kind of has trended in that way. And we've all gotten pretty used to very good specialized tools. The whole like one size fits all stuff kind of works when you're a beginner, but when you're advanced and like, again, like, you know, we're going to have thousands of people, for instance, make, we're going to have a thousand people on Teachable this year, make over a hundred thousand dollars a year. When you're making that level of income, you're okay with a little bit more complexity if it helps you do slightly better. Like these are very real dollar amounts where the whole convenience of all in one is less important than doing a few things right. And for us, payments became one thing that it just became like something that we determined we have to do right. And that itself is a giant pain in the ass. Like we have like, you know, like 30 to 30 to 40 people in our company just have to work on payments if we are to do all facets of that well. Because even though you have Stripe on one side, you have to do, you know, fraud, compliance, payouts, there's just like a million, like international taxes, local taxes, a million things going on there. So we've picked payments. We've picked sort of being the student identity layer. So even if someone in the future were to like use a circle community, we would power login because login payments and where the creator interacts with their students, we've realized that's a pretty solid bedrock where if we can own that piece of it, other stuff can all work through integrations. Like, like live video is really interesting. We've considered build. we've for four years, we all considered building live video. And finally year four, we're like, it's, we're just never going to prioritize it enough. And the world of live video tools has gotten so good. Like it's a losing battle. Like it doesn't make sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're not really prescriptive on how exactly the course instructor delivers the education, but you sort of let them package it all together and stitch together whatever pieces they want to. Yep. Yep. I want to switch gears a little bit and ask about COVID and the yep. acceleration effect that it's had on the business. You've, you've yep. tweeted publicly and written about this. Can you tell us more about just how COVID has driven the business and also explain the theory that you have on why that is. Why is it that during this time period where people theoretically have less money than before, yep. they're actually consuming more courses than before? Yep. Yeah. I mean, the whole, this entire ecosystem, as I think most people know, has witnessed 
a massive moment through COVID. What we saw was, and it's really weird because we also sold the company at the exact same time. Like the day we announced, yeah. the day we announced our acquisition was the day New York went into lockdown. Mm. So the whole thing, actually, it was the, it was, it was the day. Yeah, it was. I think the day or the day before New York went into lockdown, the, the day of the biggest stock market crash in history. All of this happened at the same time, so it's very hard to like conflate right. all these different events. But what we saw immediately after everything went into lockdown is traffic multiplying, course sales multiplying, new creator signups multiplying. The amount of time it took for someone to get a first sale has historically always trended around the 70-day mark because it takes a while to create a course, build an audience and all of that. But immediately we started seeing a ton of people having their first sale in under 30 days. And to kind of put perspective on, on like the growth, like in February, we did about 24 million or so in monthly sales. As of last month, we're about twice that. So it's hundred percent growth in half a year. And I would love to say that's how the fast the business was growing already. No, like we were on track from to maybe grow 60 or 70% year over year. Now we're doing over hundred percent in half a year. And all of that happened with with the lockdown happening, which sent an interesting flywheel where a lot of creators who basically, in general, my hypothesis is the number of people on Teachable is a very small percentage of all the people who in their mind intend to one day set up a Teachable. Same for a lot of shit, right? Like a lot of you're like, yo, I'm gonna have a podcast, I'm gonna write this book, all of that. But this pushed a lot of people into action. Like either their actual business was shut down. Um, for whatever reason, this like future theor- theoretical thing they would do became a let's get this done now. So it brought forward a lot of creators, a lot of people that were sitting on an account forever started launching. A lot of people who had bought courses that had not consumed them started consuming. And all of a sudden, like every single metric just went up and through the roof, which I do want to point out was a very weird feeling because all of us individually and New York as a community was fucking falling apart then. It was just like not a pleasant time at all in the world. Like, you know, like there were sirens outside and like, you know, as a company, we did talk about that of like, one, let, let's like recognize our privilege because yes, we grew, but it's, it's because of the world changing around us. Like I'd love to say we grew because of like, you know, specific plans we made for COVID. No, we just got kind of lucky. And it was also kind of unfair how there were like a lot of great businesses that were in a different field that became obsolete overnight. So that was one, but also what is our responsibility to the community around us, right? Like it was this weird feeling of like, yes, we're doing well, but also feeling kind of this hidden layer of guilt of like, this feels weird. Like our business is doubling, shit's falling apart. There's ambulances outside. So it was a a strange, strange time. We're obviously fortunate by virtue of being in this business. And I do think our entire industry has been brought forward, you know, I would say two to three years at least by virtue of this, because even though our numbers now are going back to where they were before, all the gains that were made are staying. It's not like our, you know, any of our monthly revenues or even our transaction volume would start from zero every month. We're never going back to where that was. Like our baseline now is still going to be what, you know, we're going to maintain all the gains we basically made. Yeah. I was going to ask about that. Is it more, is it like a temporary surge where, because, you know, people, people can't do things they used to do. Now they're doing this. And as soon as they can start doing the things they used to do, maybe go back. Or is it like, there was a bunch of people who were on the margin and, and right about to be there to do it. And then there was just a nudge. And so now they're in the world and like, it's a sustainable yep. thing, whether as a creator or a consumer. And yeah, it is, it's a sustainable thing, but the leading indicator, so let's call it the like new people creating a teachable account has gone down from what its peak was in March or April. But the total number of active users, active accounts, active sales, all those gains are maintaining themselves and are continuing to keep growth. Yeah, So totally. One thing that's so interesting to me is the story around how it can create a lot of new creators makes total sense to me. The story around how it can create a lot of new consumers that are more like permanently sticky is a little bit, it's like, it makes sense to me why if you have nothing else to do, maybe you'd spend more time consuming. The, the money part kind of blew our mind though. Like to be honest, cause that was like a little unintuitive, right? Like spe- consumer spending is down. Consumer yeah. spending on teachable courses is up. And again, we have a few theories. I don't have the confidence behind any of them, but like one of my theories was, I mean, one, we always forecast it for it to change every month. We're just like, let's not bank on this trend. This is just weird and it'll change. Um, one of my theories about why it may be uh, is it's quite possible that a teachable course is basically a cheaper version of some other activity. So in times when spending goes down, like it could go up because it's cheaper than traditional education. It's just cheaper than 
lots of other ways of spending money. Like there's a lot of value you can get from a 50 to hundred dollar course. So that was one theory. I don't have confidence in it because it still seems weird that like consumer spending goes down and then course sales went up. I also think the other effect that might be happening is at the end of the day, like we're not a consumer marketplace where consumer spending directly affects us. The amount producers or creators are pushing externally that also makes an impact on what the sales are, right? Like our sales come from creators pushing. So I also believe during that time, we got far more creators, all of whom were aggressively pushing. And that also made a huge difference to getting more sales. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, I definitely um, agree. One of my hypotheses is that there is some low end disruption effect in in Mm -hmm. play as well, where a lot of these creator products in Teachable's uh, case, it's courses, but you know, on other platforms, it's like newsletters or whatever it might be. Like these creator-led offerings actually represent a lower and low-priced version of something that had been pro- professionally produced by an organization or a company before, and they have a completely different cost structure than mm-hmm. the old version. You know, a course that yep. was created by a real-life university would cost thousands of dollars versus the Teachable version is maybe hundreds of dollars. Yep. So I think it, it taps into a lower end segment of the market that had been overserved or was unable to access what was in place before. Yep, absolutely. And it's been, it's been interesting to see that again, like that we've maintained most of those, you know, the monthly sales ramp up has, has been maintained and we're, we're still scared. Like as we're building our forecast for next year, we're like, let's just bring it down because this still like, I, like it still feels temporary, but the data shows that it's been sticking around. Yeah, that's great. I also wanted to ask you about the SaaS versus the marketplace model. So this is Mm -hmm. one of the key questions that is top of mind for basically every founder in the fashion economy. Do I enable discovery experience or not? And you had mentioned that part of the initial genesis of Teachable was the fact that on Udemy, this marketplace, it was Mm -hmm. really hard to make money. And whenever you would spend on ads to acquire customers, there was the risk that they could go off and consume another course, another course from a a different teacher. And recently Teachable launched a marketplace experiment Mm -hmm. called Discover by Teachable. I'm curious around the thinking that led to that as well as how creators have responded, if there's been any sensitivities or concerns that have been raised there. Yeah, absolutely. We're super excited because as for the last two years, we've identified that the largest opportunity we have is can we drive creators more sales just by virtue of being unteachable, right? Because right now, like right now we're somewhat, right now all these tools have the tendency to get a little bit commoditized. You're competing on features, you're competing on price, you're competing on all these things. But our hypothesis is if we can drive people more sales just by being unteachable, it becomes an unfair competition. Like every single creator will go to the place where they make more money. So that's been the genesis behind what we're trying to solve for. Discover is one experiment. There might be other experiments in that vein, but really the idea is like, can we help people make more sales? So now back to Discover, what is Discover? Again, in my mind, actual discovery for quality courses, there's still no good way of finding it. Like Udemy and stuff, like they only have Udemy courses and everyone knows the the good courses are not on Udemy. Um, So right now, the only way of finding courses that actually works is through social recommendations. It's through like asking a friend of mine or asking someone that's like good in their industry. Like, how did you learn email marketing? How did you learn blogging? How did you do this? Um, And that's not scalable. So there's definitely an opportunity to actually build a, a, a quality place to find the best content. So we rolled out Discover. It's still kind of been this experiment. We're finally now as an organization investing in building out a proper team and business unit behind it. Now as in like two weeks ago is when this started. We're very excited for what it can be because again, like just because we're building Discover, it doesn't change what I think is unique about Teachable, which is the creator is our customer primarily. Most other marketplaces have the student as their primary customer. For us, the creator is a primary customer. So that, that will inform every single smaller decision and make it all a little bit different. So for instance, the, the creator will always have full ownership on a student acquired with Discover. The creator will own all lifetime value. Right now, redemption happens on the creator's own website. You get added to the creator's marketing. So we think there's a really good opportunity to build a creator first marketplace that gets them additional distribution. 
And on the student side, try and solve course discovery to legitimately show the best content out there. It's still very, very early. Right now, we've, right now, I'd say about 90 something percent of creators that we ask if they want to be included in Discover say yes, which is frankly higher than we, higher than we guessed. The people that say no generally have either they think their course is too niche or they get the sense that like they don't want their course available in two places, but the supply side of that market is, is fine. You know, it works, it will work, it'll scale where we have to spend the next year is figuring out the demand side, right? Like how can we actually, how can we actually recommend the best courses? How do we determine what are the best courses? How do we surface? What are the best courses? Can we have enough courses where the best courses mean something? That's really where we're spending a lot of our time to figure out what that could look like in the future. Yeah, totally. I'm really curious how you think about that because there's, a, I think, a lot of products in other domains that are kind of similar and, and have struggled, but there's also some that have succeeded. And it's hard for me to tell like what the pattern is. You know, there's, there's like, you know, obviously YouTube is really great yep. at recommending videos and tons of people yep. pay attention to yep. their recommendations. But, you know, Patreon really struggled to like yep. Yep. create a yep. discovery yep. interface. I mean, for- Shopify, right? They're a massive company. They're still in the process of figuring it out. They've tried four times. Yep. I think Shop actually might be the fifth time they're trying. And yeah, I mean, I recall Toby once saying that they could fail repeatedly, but they're going to keep trying. So that's kind of how we feel where mm-hmm. like, again, I'm very optimistic about Discover, but no matter what happens with Discover over the next decade, we're, keep, we're going to continue trying. What can we do to help our creators get more sales? And like, right. there's a lot of theories and ideas we want to try, but to me, it's, it's the biggest opportunity we have both to make our product like win this battle against other tools by virtue of helping creators make more money. And it just like, it's something that no one else in our very immediate space, which is like the software space is doing. And to me, it's like, it's, it's obvious, like, you know, you want to start with one business that's working in our case, the SaaS business, and then layer on the other. Right. Totally. Yeah. No, I, I think one thing that's interesting is like, when I talk to, I've done a little bit of user research around these kinds of questions. And like, I'm trying to sort of, back my way into like what's the typical discovery path for these kinds of things and like what are the elements that made that work and like how do you recreate that in in potentially like a dedicated discovery interface and the interesting thing i don't think very many people are like looking for new newsletters to sign up for or new courses or new apps to download i think when you think about like a newsletter or a course or an app or something like that it just represents cost in your mind and like the average value you get is very low and so occasionally something will come on your radar and you're like oh that seems awesome specifically but i'm not looking i'm never looking for a generic like course or a generic app you know what i mean yep that's that's what we that's what we're not struggling with but discussing a lot internally is like which is why, like, at least for me, the way I discover shit is like social recommendations, right? Like right. it might be someone I'm following on Twitter and especially with books, it doesn't take a lot to get me to buy a book. If I see someone smart on Twitter saying something and the book looks interesting and like 14 seconds later, I bought it. The same way, like I think, I think for a lot of people now, book discovery still is now happening socially versus, you know, browsing Amazon or whatever. I, the, with that said, I love going to bookstores still. Yeah. That's a different, that's a different book discovery mechanism, but that's, yeah, so we've, we've talked about a lot of parallels. We're like, can, can Discover be like the, you know, like the airport bookstore where, yes, there's a lot of books, but you want to just create this showcase of really cool shit on the platform and see if anyone purchases that. Or is there a way of like, well, in general, we've noticed people are recommending courses to their audience. I mean, like even like there are people who have very small newsletters by number of subscribers. Like we're talking a few hundred, maybe a couple of thousand subscribers. But if they recommend a thing, people will buy that thing, right? So can we create the infrastructure layer behind that to, to make that happen? So there's all these opportunities we're discussing to really leverage the network effects that this business could have. Like right now, our business doesn't really have network effects, but I think there's a, there's a lot of ways we can build network effects. And that's what a lot of these strategies come down to. I was really struck by how crystal clear you were on strategically thinking of the creator as your end customer. Like the creator is the person that you are trying to serve and cater for first and foremost. And I think that is so unique and interesting. And I think there's a lot of creator products out there where sometimes it confuses me who they think their their customer is. For instance, I've said regarding Substack, like I'm not entirely sure if they think their customer is the writer or the reader. Yeah. 
and you know I've remarked on this because I can't customize the font size and stuff in my <laughs> newsletters yeah and I think one of the reasons why TikTok has been able to take so much attention away from Instagram and other social platforms is by treating the creator as a first-class citizen and catering for them and giving them tools and resources, including financial resources to be able to pursue their craft and, and really treating them as like a constituency that they really care about first and foremost. Yeah. Yeah. For us, I mean, I think a large part of it has to do with our DNA. Like, again, I mean, to be honest, like the courses by Conrad and I were pretty terrible, but we still technically started out as creators, right? Like that's that we built the product for ourselves and we were creators. And since then, like when we do product development, we're talking to other creators. We're not, you know, talking unless we're specifically designing student side features, like all of our research and conversations and interviews, like it's all coming from creators and that gets bubbled up. And at this point, you know, we've tried to make it an intentional part of our culture to, you know, whenever there's a trade-off and a decision, that's like a hard decision, do the thing that would work better for the creator always. Yeah. I love that. Maybe for the last question, before we turn it over to the audience, I want to ask you about any predictions that you have for the future of online education. What do you think are perhaps some of the form factors that we'll see in coming years or ways in which education can be better delivered and create better outcomes for students going forward? I think one, I'm, I can't predict the future on what the form factors will be, but they will look dramatically different. I think just again, as, our, as a human race, if this is the best we can do with all the tools technology gives us, it still kind of sucks. That's one. Two, we're starting to see more and more people make real money with education. Well, you know, we have someone on our platform who's made 10 million bucks. We're soon going to have a few more people at 10 million. We have, you know, hundreds of people and millions of dollars in earnings. If you're earning that from a course, it's going to be a matter of time before you realize what would this course look like if I actually spent $100,000 creating this course? What would it look like if I spent, and you're seeing a little bit with masterclass, but I can see this, you know, eventually more people also spending large amounts of money, raising the production value of courses. Like I think back to the early Mm -hmm. days of social games, when social games looked terrible and then they eventually started, you know, looking more and more like, you know, larger games because they became bigger businesses. So that will start happening. With that said, I don't think we'll ever get to a point where that will be a prerequisite because one of the cool things about online education is just how long tail it is. Like Mm -hmm. there's always going to be a market for courses and for courses that serve a smaller audience and they don't need high production value. So that's something that will also happen. And finally, I think we're going to start seeing more and more outcome-based shit where creators have real skin in the game. We're already starting to see now that a few years ago, it was totally possible to build this like large, scalable, million-dollar course business by virtue of having a large audience. Honestly, it's gotten a lot harder because now to do that, you need not just an audience, but you need a really high what we call course NPS or whatever, but just people who take your product and don't shut, don't ever stop talking about it. You know, like, like that's the shit that where you're going to start needing um, in order to scale a business, which means outcomes are becoming more important than ever before. You can't just like have a massive following, build a really tight marketing funnel, use urgency and deadlines. Yes. That's going to help you sell a few courses, but unless you have like just crazy fans that will never shut the hell up about what your course is, you're not going to get to the 110 eventually 100 million dollar business. Yeah. I ha- I have a quick like follow up. I'm I'm very curious about the like new formats you're seeing like, you know, you, like in in what people can do once they start generating a lot of returns that they can reinvest to make their their course experience better, which is like obviously that's the primary means of comp- like the 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 axis of competition is on like the course experience, right? So like you can either go more niche or you can go like higher quality in some way and like one area I've seen that's super fascinating with that, that no one seems to be doing anything with yet is what Andy Mastercheck, I can't remember exactly how to pronounce his last name, and Michael Nielsen are working on where they have like uh, spaced repetition, like built into text and yep. like, you know, Brett Victor, like explorable explanations, all that kind of stuff is like really fascinating. I'm, I'm going to do a terrible job of explaining it, but basically imagine interactive content that's 
cognizant of the cycle of like learning and forgetting that people yep. have and, yep. and is a little bit more customizable where you can go deeper on things or get more time on things that you yep. may not understand, or you can skip over things more quickly that you already understand. This feels yep. like the next kind of competitive frontier to me rather than like Hollywood quality yep. video. Yep. Um, yep. I'm, I'm curious if you're seeing anyone do that. I, I, or, I think, yeah. And again, by Hollywood quality video, I just mean you're spending more on producing a course. Spending more on producing right. a course could mean hiring 20 TAs to like actually grade assignments. It doesn't mean like better video assets, better video assets may, like I think we've reached a point where you can't have shit video, which you know, it doesn't right. be amazing, but like, yeah, you can't have shit video anymore. So yeah, we'll start, we're, we're starting to see, yeah, people just innovating by spending more. And a lot of cases spending more means hiring full-time staff to support students, right? That's a way of raising the production value. So yeah. definitely starting to see a lot of that. My one hope with this is like, we finally stop talking about completion rates because completion rates to me are like the shittiest metric, especially when a lot of people measure them as like, have you consumed hundred percent of video content? And that's dumb because no one designs courses where you consume hundred percent of video content. But like, if I read one more article about MOOCs report of 4% completion rate of people that have watched every video, but that's like the wrong way of measuring it. In my mind, you've completed a course. If it has prom, if you have achieved the outcome, it promises. And don't get me wrong, that's still a small percentage of people that accomplish that, but that's how you measure a completion of a course, not have you watched every minute of every video, which is still how a lot of like people from like legacy education like to measure online education. It makes no sense to me. Also, I bet 4% completion rate is better than the ratio of people who buy books to, that actually read to the last word. <laughs> it's probably like 1% or less. Yeah. Like seriously, just. I've, yeah. I've, I've read a lot of numbers on that, but I'm, I'm just very curious how people, how people survey and get that data. But yeah, like, yeah, I did see what like, I think I was seeing like 10%, like a surprising percentage of books are never opened. Like forget read, like, like they're just, they're just aspirationally purchased. <laughs> yeah. I'm guilty of that. Yeah, yeah, I think of the completion rate as like, I don't think low completion rate is necessarily problematic because it yeah. actually signifies that the entry costs are relatively low, that a lot of casual users were able to sign yeah. up and just explore it. And if it's, you know, not interesting to them, they don't have to complete it, but it means the barriers to entry are lower. Yeah. And courses typically you're meant to like, you're allowed to skip around. You're allowed to like, look at the parts that are most interesting. Creators have tons of bonus material, but you don't have to watch every video of every interview, every minute of every interview. Yeah. So yeah, hopefully as an industry, we move away from that. On the second point around some of the outlier uh, successes that you've seen on the platform being millions of dollars or tens of millions of dollars of sales. I'm curious if that signifies that perhaps like teachable might think about financing some of the costs of production and running these courses in the future for their teachers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've talked about the whole the entire, I mean, there's a suite of financial products that we have the opportunity to build, right? From like advances to creators, giving them marketing budgets, sort of almost the Shopify capital strike capital. We've discussed all of those. The reality of it is we're just buried right now in the amount of payments, legal compliance, taxes, all that shit. Like there's already a ton going on there. So it's on our roadmap, but the, mo the most immediate short-term part for roadmap is just automating taxes and compliance, which frankly, most other platforms don't do. You just integrate your Stripe and it's your problem. We actually manage all of that for you, but it does mean, you know, we have to have a pretty large risk team and underwriting team, tax team. Like we right now, for instance, are registered in the EU and we will like, file your VAT taxes for you, which almost no one does. But our priority right now is like, let's, let's take care of the compliance. And then we can start thinking about the other financial products we can build on top. Got it. Exciting stuff in the works for Teachable. Yep. Cool. So I think we have a few audience questions. For anyone who has a question, um, you can raise your hand in Zoom. And if you are in a position to speak, we will actually let you up on stage and, and you can ask your question live. So totally. please raise your hands guys. Yeah. And while, while people are raising their hands, just a quick plug for every Tuesday, we have like a news roundup now. That's like a new, new thing we're doing. So if you go to meansofcreation.substack.com, you'll learn about all the things that happen every week in the passion economy, including things like courses, like when teachable announces their next big thing, it'll be in there. Yeah. <laughs> so, or if you want to break any news through us, uh, let us know. Great. <laughs> so we're uh, sending you all our exclusives. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Amazing. Okay, cool. Yeah, last uh, week we broke the news. Well, we didn't break it. We were one of the first outlets to cover the fact that Bella Porch on TikTok is not a real person. 
Wow. Yeah, we linked it's to a YouTube like a video. But what? Creation. I'm I'm 31 years old. I'm too old for TikTok. I, I, <laughs> I think I, it doesn't work for me. Um, cool. So we got Leo who who has raised his hand. Leo. Hi, Leo. Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. How's yep. it going? Going good. I wanted to say that I really love these talks, Nathan and Lee. I wanted to ask. I wanted to ask a question about referring to actually a comment that Nathan Barry of ConvertKit had a couple talks ago. So basically he had suggested that selling a one-time product instead of a subscription like Substack is a better return for creators starting out. And I wanted to ask Anchor, like what differences in success have you seen with creators on Teachable who offer subscriptions versus one-time courses? And which strategy would you suggest overall to new creators in the passion economy 2020 and beyond? That's, that's amazing that, that Nathan said that because I strongly hold that opinion, but a lot of other people don't like we've, we actually see so many creators that start out with like trying to sell subscriptions because of the promise of recurring revenue. But for, again, I will echo what Nathan said, where I think, if you're starting out, I would sell a single product, you know, probably somewhere in the hundred dollar range, which is still, which is high enough where it starts mattering, but it's low enough that it's an impulse buy. Cause generally we've seen if a product is over a couple hundred dollars, it's never going to be an impulse buy, which means you have to work harder for the sale, but you know, about, up to about a hundred bucks, it happens right away. Subscriptions are really painful because people te- people benchmark around very low numbers when it comes to monthly things, they've still benchmark around like, really large media companies of like five and 10 and $15 and stuff. And it sucks because realistically, I can tell you now your lifetime for all those customers is going to be three months. So do the math. Chances are like 15 into three is 45, or you can sell something for a hundred bucks. So I would strongly recommend, yeah. Also starting out with a non-membership and eventually think about, you know, adding a membership component to your business, but just know that initially network wide, the average lifetime is three months. The other, oh, the other thing I should add is another good strategy to another good strategy that we have see people employ is payment plans, which is not a subscription, mm. but it's breaking down a, like, let's say a $300 product into three payments of $99. Mm. So that's a really good sort of in between. If you have a more expensive product that you want to break out into something more palatable. Reminds me of when I was a kid staying up way Got too it. late on TV, seeing things broken down into payment plans okay, on just, commercials late at night. Six easy payments of like $24 yeah. a month. Yeah. But I mean, it's so, a thing. It helps. I, I, that's a really interesting point about subscriptions. It's, it's like basically consumers have been affected by all of the media subscriptions around us in the world yeah. that are, you know, expect, $6, $10 Spotify. Like, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's just hard for creators who don't have that scale of a Netflix to be able to make that work. Yeah. If I was building a subscription product, I would go in like the expensive financial newsletter type space where you're like still charging hundreds of dollars a month. Like, and getting people to expense it. Yeah. Yeah. Like five, five or like it's again, my my advice would be imagine you're getting a three month lifetime value and then make your decision. Hmm. Got it. Thank you. Of course. Thank you. Anshul had a great question that's like currently it's got a thumbs up by the way in the q a feature you can like thumbs up and kind of like vote on people's questions so angel do you have can you can you chat yeah hey yeah hey nathan so thanks for taking up my question so my question to ankur was that do you think teachable for x uh, will come up for like different niches but in fields like programming or fitness yep yeah i mean i think there's going to be and it's really funny, right? We've gone from this world where we were raising money and people said, I can't imagine Teachable ever being more than a $20 million company to now every investor believing there's billion dollar companies to be built in the Teachable for X. I mean, spaces that I'm specifically very excited about are, I mean, let's, for instance, look at language learning, right? Like there's so many different, forget language learning, let's look at English language learning. There's so many different billion dollar companies built in the helping people learn English space. So I think absolutely there's going to be lots of big outcomes in the fitness space, language learning space, learning to code space, even learning a musical instrument. Like I think, I think there's going to, we're going to start seeing a lot more verticalized approaches to this. And I've already seen a ton of them and a lot of them looking really cool. And I think in, in, with time, the innovation is going to, is going to keep going and we're going to see a lot of, a lot of really cool verticalized education platforms. 
a marketplace for English language learning where you've got different teachers that have sort of different domains maybe that they cover like, oh, here's like, you know, business English in the technology that industry. That already exists. Oh, really? Yeah. That's amazing. What and not is only that, it, and not only that it, a lot of it in, exists by country. Like if you look at the English language learning space in Japan, there's a bunch of companies there. English language learning in Latin America, there's a bunch of like, I remember once reading an article about just how massive this space was and it completely blew my mind. Wow. Well, yeah, there's a platform called Cambly where you can actually filter teachers by the specific style of English that you want to learn. Business wow. English, whatever it is. That's crazy. Amazing. Let's see who else. Omar has a question. How's it going, Omar? Can you chat? Hello? Yeah. Hi. Yeah, yeah the internet might not be that stable. I hope it's clear. I'm just wondering because, uh, you know, all these courses, I think like learning to cook or whatever, these kind of specific uh, non-professional courses, their value is more based on what this person sees in them, right? But I was wondering in terms of, let's say, if you're look, trying to find some job, for instance, that uh, I think Lee mentioned it before that she, you're comparing it to why should I go to uni and study if I can just learn it, you know, at home. So differences though that those are accredited as opposed to you know those online courses so how do employers uh, see the difference in the value yeah so i think i think something that we saw very early on in our data is courses like that which is like drawing singing like just personal development type of courses tended to sell for lower prices like you are as likely to create a million dollar business with those courses but chances are you're going to have to get more people to buy at a lower price than a course on professional development that can help you either earn more money or, or get a better job, which tended to sell at a higher price. I mean, I think as you pointed out, Omar, that is true. Like, honestly, like my employer will not care about my scrapbooking course, but if it's also because in my mind, online education and online courses serve many purposes of which the whole, you know, professional development and like, getting a better job or getting paid more is only one of them. A lot of these courses people take for like self-actualization or take because it's a fun way to spend the weekend or, or take in lieu of some other activity that isn't always like professional development. But I'm curious if Lee and Nathan, you have any, any other comments on that? Nothing, nothing huge to add other than I think that definitely it's going to become a lot more common for companies to start to subsidize this because like just sort of, practical training type things it doesn't make sense for individual companies to like have tons of like training things if, if if it's something that applies to multiple companies and so and schools aren't really teaching it right there's like tons of random specialized stuff and so i just i think that it's already pretty common in silicon valley it's going to become more common in lo probably lots of other parts of the economy for there to be like a learning and development budget that it just yeah. becomes a thing that people it's like a, a pretty big part of like the ecosystem for this i also think that a lot of these creator-led courses are going to become increasingly legitimized in the eyes of employers as they produce successful students who actually, you know, mm -hmm. have gotten a result and know the material. Like, you know, when Lambda School first got started, the fact that you had gone through Lambda School, it didn't really mean anything to employers. And now with successive cohorts and programs that have been run and students that have graduated and gone on to working in the industry, it, that now connotes something. It means something to have been a Lambda School student or to be, you know, a, a longtime reader of Ben Thompson also means something. So I think over time, as there's more success and people in the industry who have gone through these courses and, and actually gone through the curriculum, I think eventually they'll be viewed as legitimate in the same way that a lot of educational institutions are now legitimized because they've produced successful graduates. I hope that too. Thank you for the response. Yeah. Thank um, you. First event and yeah, it was pretty good so far. So. Oh, nice. Awesome. Thank, oh, thank you for you. joining us. Pretty good. Yeah. We'll give <laughs> it a seven out of 10. I guess, uh, yeah, seven out of 10. <laughs> cool. Anyone else? Who do we have? I like Ooh. Tyler's question. Should we call him up here? Oh yeah, Tyler. Do you can you answer or can you ask it live or he cannot unmute. Okay, he can't unmute. Tyler's um, at work right now, pretending background okay. noise. Yeah, I'll I'll just read it out loud. Which is that he says one thing I've struggled with in education in general is fixed pacing. Courses are delivered at a set pace and level. If you're struggling or want to go much faster, it's all work on the side. 
the course is generally linear. Do you perceive this as a general problem? And is this something you think Teachable could help address? And if so, how? So at Teachable, we're, again, it ties back to us being unopinionated. Like we allow some instructors to release all material at once. We allow instructors to drip the content out. We even have like the ability for an instructor dripping the content out to enable students going faster to access everything. So I think this is, again, for us as a platform, we're unopinionated, but I think it really depends on how the creator slash teacher approaches it. Because as Tyler says, as a student, a lot of times you want to be able to go through everything faster, but all the research shows that having a group of people going through the material at the same time and engaging with each other produces better learning outcomes. Mm. So I think this really comes down to, really comes down to how the creator approaches it and also also, I think, you know, like we use the word course right now as a catch-all word for lots of different types of things, but for things that are learning where it's not bi-directional, you're con- just consuming content. I can, I totally see a world where creators or our recommendation is creators let people access everything as soon as possible, but where if discussions are an issue, then, you know, that's, it's the same thing where you want people to, to all discuss together. So from Teachable's perspective, we're, we're open. We let people do whatever, whatever the hell they want, but and we're, we're seeing, we're seeing creators take different decisions based on what type of course it is. Great. Should we take one more question? Yeah. Nate, do you want to pick one? I, I really like the, well, we should do someone live. Uh, Kunal just raised his hand. Kunal, can you chat? Uh, hey. Hey, how's it Hi. going? Hey. My question was, why did you choose your primary customer as the creator and not the student? Maybe I think it's because despite there being more students than creators, it's creators who choose the platform. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so there's several reasons. Like The biggest one of which is a lot of times when you're building software and you're building a company, you tend to build for yourself. And it so happened that we were creators at the time doing that. So that was the first reason. The second reason is like the go-to-market motion we we were looking for is we were looking for creators to bring in students. We just thought it was a more efficient way where you don't have to worry about acquiring two sides of the same. Like if we acquired students, we'd still have to acquire creators. But if you acquire creators, they would bring the students. So we believed like it would make marketing and building the platform a lot easier if we had to only focus on one side of it. And finally, it was also our like hypothesis of like, look, we think the platform that gets the best creators will win and the best creators will always go to platform that prioritizes them over everything. So I think the culmination of all these reasons are why we were creator first, which again, I think it's one of those decisions that worked out pretty well in retrospect. It was controversial upfront, but now we're seeing every large platform starting to refocus on the creator if they, if they hadn't already. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, even even in, in a space near and dear to, to my heart, newsletters, you see Medium, you know, getting into newsletters mm-hmm. and potentially sharing emails now because that's, it's oh, interesting wow, how really? we talk about like competitive arbitrage yes. as like a, as like a thing where it drives down prices, but it also drives other sorts of terms to be more favorable for, for creators. Yep. Yep. Ownership. Yeah. Ownership is critical. Like that's something we realized very early on is like creators, like smart creators realized very soon that they needed to own their audience directly. Otherwise it just doesn't, otherwise you're not building a business. You're like, you're, you're just doing this thing that you're renting money, it. But there's exactly. Yeah. There's no, nothing sustainable. Love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I love ending on that note of being creator first. Yeah. And so if people want to read your writing or get in touch with you or learn more, what, where should they go for that? Uh, probably Twitter. I'm pretty active on Twitter. I, I'm at my full name and there's the Teachable brand account at Teachable. So either of those places would be great. Awesome. Okay. So give Encore a follow and thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it was great chatting with you, Encore. Thank you so much for being here and have a great weekend, everyone. Thank you.